We now come to the reading of today's passage, which is going to be in Isaiah 53. In the Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 613 and 614. So listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. As we prepare to come before the Lord's word, let's go before him and ask for his help. Let's pray together. Father, it is right that we would come before you and ask for your help. We are dependent upon your mercy and grace, uh, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would reveal your Son to us and the hope that we have in Him. Father, as we spend time beneath your Word this morning, would you deal with us all? Would you meet with us, each of us, um, individually? As we come through these doors, there are some of us whose hearts are full of sorrow. There are those of us whose hearts are full of anxiety and fear and worry. There are many of us who have many questions that remain unsettled, and we find ourselves skeptical, maybe even surprised to be gathered together in a church this very morning. And still others of us come excited to be with your people today. But the truth is, no matter how we come through these doors this morning, we need you to remind us that we're really all in the same boat. We're all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so together we need, as we come before your word, to be reminded that because of what you have done for us in Jesus, it can be true of us at the very same time that we can be far more broken than we ever imagined, but also far more loved and far more accepted and approved and free than we ever dare dream possible. And so we pray that you would take us to this good news in Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Children ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church at this time, so if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. As our latecomers get mobbed by the kids... uh, this fall, um, <clears throat> this fall, we've been looking at the book of James together, but um, we've hit pause on that series to spend a little time uh, reflecting this Christmas season on the prophecy of Jesus that's found in Isaiah chapter 53, really Isaiah 52 verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. And so last week we reflected together on Christmas and the puzzling servant, 
um, that Isaiah described for us in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 14. And this morning, we're looking at the second stanza of this song um, in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3 that we read just a moment ago. And this morning, we're considering Christmas and the upside-down servant. Um, When I was a kid, I remember being just fascinated by optical illusions. Um, Loved seeing these drawings that people would do, um, these optical illusions. And there's many complex ones out there, but one of the simplest optical illusions out there is called the Necker Cube. And um, actually, I found a Sharpie in my office, and so I drew a picture of the Necker Cube. So this is your visual, right? This is that cube that you used to doodle in class when you were supposed to be taking notes on your paper, right? Um, And um, if you couldn't see that, I don't know uh, how your eyesight is, but um, I tried to draw it thick enough. Um, it's a transpa- that transparent three-dimensional cube that you can draw, and um, it's an optical illusion because when you're looking at it on a piece of paper, you look at it and it appears to be facing one direction, and then you blink and the next thing you know, it's facing a completely other direction, or it appears to be, right? And, uh, and that's how it works. Um, As we look at Isaiah 53 this morning, there are really no surprises because what I'm praying happens for you this morning is that I want you to metaphorically blink um, so that this servant in Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3, who at first appears despicable, really, becomes beautiful to you. Um, and I'm praying it happens for you because as Isaiah wrote at the end of verse one, you can't see and you can't apprehend this servant's beauty unless it's revealed to you, unless God's spirit pulls back from, for you, the veil of this spirit's, of this servant's ordinariness and his unattractiveness, uh, so that you really see his glory and Here's the deal. When you see his beauty, when you truly apprehend what he became and what he did for you, it it will radically change your life. Um, So it will turn you inside out. It will turn you upside down. Um, So let me lead you through just these simple three verses like this. First, I want us to think about the outside-in strategy of the world. That is, I want us to see and think about this morning how we normally approach life, uh, trying to prove to ourselves and others that we're okay, that we matter, that we're acceptable, and that we're lovable. And we use an outside-in strategy to do that. But second, I want us to think about the upside-down servant. I want us to think about how this servant came, about how this servant came and lived completely upside down to the world's values. And then finally, I want us to think about the inside out and upside down followers of Jesus. Because when you blink and you truly see and behold the beauty of this upside down servant, it's going to change you. And I want to talk about a few of the ways that it will change us. Uh, So first, let's talk about the outside in strategy of the world. David Brooks um, is an author I enjoy reading for his cultural insights into the American worldview. And here's something David Brooks wrote. He wrote, American civilization encourages us to strive to realize our best self. Um, So what he's talking about here is he's talking about this 
idealistic premise um, that given that everyone given the right amount of effort and discipline and support and, and so on, you can be anything you want to be. That's the American dream, right? And, uh, but he goes on and he says this, our identity, we often assume, is formed not by where we are born or who our ancestors are. Our identity is defined by what we do and what we accomplish. In other words, we live in a meritocracy, um, and our worth and our value and our identity, it's merited by what we do and what we accomplish, and it is the epitome of the outside-in strategy. See, we're hungry, all of us, for validation. We're hungry for approval, to feel like we're enough to feel like we matter and we're significant and important, right? D- to prove that we're okay. We need that. We're hungry for that. And it's, su- it's such a part of the fabric of our culture that much of the time we don't even notice it. But we live in a world that says the way you get an identity is by working outside in, by what you do and what you can accomplish. The outs- see, the outside in strategy, it's all about building the right resume, And it's pretty easy to see how this stuff gets worked out in our professional lives. You know, what's on your professional resume, right? Um, Well, the truth, I hope, it's not always the case, but... But it's probably at the very least missing some things, right? Because you list your GPA and the degree you earned or achieved and the positions you've held and the honors you've received and you talk about on your resume the kinds of responsibility that's been entrusted to you. But what's missing on your resume are all your insecurities and all your fears, and all your weaknesses, and all your failures in life, and the times you were passed over for promotions, right? And the times you lost in life and failed. Why is that? Because we know how the game works. It's an outside-in strategy, right? But it's everywhere. It's not just on our professional resumes. It's not limited to our careers, But what about relationally, personally and relationally in our lives? We become masters of spin with everybody around us, right? The appearance of transparency is good, but don't get too transparent with others, right? We hide our flaws, our shortcomings. um, We hide our desires from others, right? You know what else we do? We want to get close to the right people relationally, um, the end people. We want to be seen with them, right? We call it networking, um, but we want to know people of influence, people in positions of power and authority, right? It makes us feel like we're someone if we know them and are connected to them. But it's not just in our careers. It's not just relationally, right? We do it with our money. I've got a friend who loves to say, money's just money, um, Well, don't be that foolish, as foolish as my friend, because money is never just money. I mean, that's why the Bible talks about it over and over again as a power, right? And and employed in the outside-in strategy, money becomes so much more than just money, right? It becomes our comfort. It becomes our security in life. It becomes our worth. Money speaks, and it tells us who we are. 
Are we a failure? Are we a disappointment? Or are we a success? success? Money is never just money, right, in the outside-in world. There's this hilarious line in the movie uh, Anchorman, um, and it's got to be one of the most quoted lines from that movie where Will Ferrell, you know, he's playing this character, Ron Burgundy, the anchor man, and he's talking to Christina Applegate's character, Veronica Corningstone, if you remember the movie, and he really, really wants to impress her, right? And so they're at this party, and so he says, he says to her, I'm kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> um, he says, people know me, right? Um, I'm very important, he tells her. Um, and I love this last little part. He says, you know, I have many leather-bound books, um, and my office smells of, or my apartment smells of rich mahogany. Um, and, you know, it's funny to wa- watch him and hear him explaining how important he is to this, this character, Veronica Corningstone, and, and we laugh about that. Um, and we laugh about it because good comedy is always based in reality in, in some way, right? And we know that the only reason someone would ever say, you know, I'm kind of a big deal, um, is because they know they're not, right? Because they're afraid they're not. And so they, they're trying to convince themselves and everyone else that they are a big deal. And, and how does... How does this character do it? Well, better, how do we do it, right? How do we do it? We use the outside-in strategy to do it, right? Look at my gifts, my strengths, my accomplishments, and so on, and we calculate our worth from the outside-in. In verse 3 of this passage that we read, Isaiah used a very interesting Hebrew word, and it's at the very end of the verse where Isaiah told us that this servant was despised. And then it says, and we esteemed him not. The Hebrew scholars will tell you that that word for esteemed that's used there, it's an accounting word, right? And here's what Isaiah is saying. When the world looked at the servant, they did the math. Accounting word, right? And they saw that he had none of the world's markers, for worth or value or importance. Verse 2, right? He had no form, no majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. He had no connections. He had no power. He had no position, no wealth in the eyes of the world. With the eyes of the world looking outside in, they did the math and he was a nothing He was a nobody. I mean, the world took one look at his resume, and they laughed him off as a joke. And you would have too. You know, I'm getting a little bit into my second point here, but but listen, you would not invite this man to your tailgate in the grove. You would not invite this person to your Christmas party. You would not have listed him as a reference on your resume. There are people you want to be seen with. There are names you want to drop. You wouldn't have wanted to be seen with him, is what Isaiah is saying. And you wouldn't have dropped his name ever. He was, verse 3, one from whom men hide their faces. They didn't even want to look at him. Now, we've got to move on, but listen, why do you constantly in your life feel like, I'm due a vacation, 
I need a break. Do you know why? What, what are we trying to escape? What are we trying to recover from in life? We're trying to get out of this outside-in strategy. Even if just for a moment, a week or so, our identity is defined by what we do and what we accomplish, and it is wearing us out, and it is burning you out, and it is exhausting you. Can you see this and recognize this outside-in strategy in your life? Okay, second, let's take a look at this upside-down strategy of the servant. Isaiah called the servant the arm of the Lord in verse 1, right? And that's a bit of a loaded phrase for Isaiah. So if you were just reading through Isaiah's prophecy, this wouldn't have been the first time you came across this phrase, the arm of the Lord. In fact, he's been building anticipation for the arm of the Lord. And so, and his arrival. So in Isaiah 51 verse 19, he tells us that he, the arm of the Lord was called to awake. In 52 verse 6, the arm of the Lord pledged God's own presence. In 52 verse 8, the arm of the Lord foresaw God himself coming to Zion. In 52.10, the arm of the Lord has been bared in powerful saving action. So the anticipation has been building, in other words, so, so that you're thinking, wow, when the arm of the Lord comes, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so impressive. But wait, this is the arm of the Lord in this passage, verses 1 through 3. And he isn't impressive at all. He's a nobody. He's a nothing. When this servant came, he came upside down from everyone's expectation. Right? There's a story in Mark 6 that I think really highlights this upside-down servant, because in Mark 6, Jesus, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth, right? And and you keep in mind that Nazareth wasn't a big city. It was very small, probably about about around 500 people lived there at this time. In other words, it was a town where everyone knew everyone else, right? And nothing big ever really happened there. And Jesus lived there for about 25 years of his life. And now the hometown kid was causing a big splash. He was teaching and he was doing these miracles. And you might expect that the hometown would be pulling for this kid, this guy, right? Kind of like Ole Miss pulls for the New York Giants because of Eli Manning, because he's there. Um, Ole Miss doesn't win, so let's look at the Giants, right? And Mississippi State fans, right, all of a sudden, they've become big Dallas Cowboy fans, right, Uh, because their season kind of went down the tubes too. But, hey, we know that guy. He was here. He was one of us. But that's not what happened in Mark chapter 6. Here's what they said in Mark chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? And then here it comes. Isn't this Mary's son? Right? And the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? Here's what they're saying. They're saying, yeah, we know him, but he's a no one. He's the carpenter's son. Right? And then they said, you know, isn't this Mary's son? <laughs> Look, that's a really odd way to state Jesus' identity in a patriarchal society where everyone was referred to by their father's name. You see, here, here's what they were saying. We don't even know who his dad really is. 
Because we did the math. And Mary and Joseph got married. And then they had a baby boy something like seven months later. We don't even... He's an illegitimate child. He's a nothing, is what they were saying. The scholar William Lane, he wrote about these verses. In spite of what they heard and saw, they failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized the one who had grown up in the village. They couldn't see it. He was so upside down to their expectations. And we think, well, why didn't Jesus set them straight? We only think that because we don't realize how upside down he really was. I mean, not only did he not set them straight, but he was doing these amazing miracles and people started to get impressed with him, right? And so what did Jesus do when people started to get impressed? He would say, shh, don't, don't tell anybody who I am, right? He healed lepers, and he silenced demons, and he wouldn't explain his parables in public, and he raised the dead, and every time he kept saying, see that you do not tell anyone. Why the secrecy, Jesus? It's because Jesus knew that no one would understand his upside-down strategy. Right? He knew that given half a chance, we wanted to define what kind of servant he would be. We wanted to be the ones that would define what kind of Messiah, what kind of king he would be and should be. Surely this has happened to you as you've driven down Poplar or Germantown Parkway here in Memphis, um, but a construction company moves in in an area and they set up that chain link fence and they start to level the ground and, you know, eventually they start pouring concrete for the foundation of a building that they're going to build. And as you're driving by, you think to yourself, I wonder what they're building, right? And I, I don't know if it happens as much in a place like Memphis, but I've lived in some small towns before. And when, when something like this would happen, everybody was excited about it, Right. Because what, what's it going to be, right? Uh, did you see they were, they were doing su- such and such on such and such a road, right? I, I wonder what they're building. And that's all it took to get people started, you know, talking about it. And, and so they start thinking about what kind of store it might be, what kind of restaurant it might be, right? Is it going to be a gas station? Whatever it's going to be, right? And if you listen closely when people are talking about stuff like that, they're all really saying, this is what I hope it will be. Um, right? This is what I want it to be. It would be great if it was such and such. And then about two months later, they put up a sign on the chain link fence and it says, coming soon, Taco Bell or Crystal. And everyone's sad about it. Um, but, but listen, you know, this is, this is what's going on here, right? Jesus was up against the outside in strategy and values of the world. And the world was looking for a Messiah and a King that fit their agenda and their understanding of what he should be. He should be impressive. He should be majestic. He should be powerful. He should be attractive. He should be someone we would want to follow, right? For the Jews, it was a militaristic king. You know, we want somebody to come in here and kick the Romans' butts, (laughs) get them out of here, deliver us from our oppressors, Right, A a king who would come and fix the circumstances of our lives. A king who would fit our desires. A king who would never contradict us. We don't want that. A king who would make my life better and more comfortable, right? Make me feel good about myself. Make my troubles go away, whatever. And Jesus was saying, shh, don't tell anyone. Because he wouldn't let anyone 
define what kind of king he would be because he was committed to this upside-down strategy. How upside-down was his life? He was a king born in obscurity. He was poor. When he was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, he had to ask somebody else for a coin to see Caesar's image because he didn't have a coin. He was homeless, right? Foxes have their holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was acquainted with grief, our passage tells us. His life was one of tears and sorrow. He was lonely because he was despised and rejected, as Isaiah 53 tells us. What a strange hero. What a strange king. Messiah and servant. And where did this upside-down strategy lead him? He wasn't building a resume, anything like the resumes you and I build, right? One that tells how great and how wonderful we are and all that. His upside-down strategy led him to a cross where he would conquer through weakness. That's upside down. He came to reign through his own defeat. He became the victor by becoming a victim of injustice. He came to win through losing. Right, Brokenness was broken through his brokenness. Death was killed through his death. Destruction was destroyed through his own destruction. He was upside down in every way. In every way, he was the upside-down servant. Okay, now finally, I want us to talk practically about what this means for us, what it could mean for us today. And this this is where we're going in the last point, to talk about the inside-out and upside-down followers of Jesus. And let's start here, because I'm asking you if you can blink and see this servant who at first appears despicable, but I'm asking you now, can you see his beauty If you are ever going to be radically changed and become one of Jesus' inside-out and upside-down followers in this life, it starts here, and it begins with a very inside-out and upside-down step. Okay, you you see, in the outside-in world, you lead with your abilities and your strengths and your successes, because what? Those are assets, right? Those are assets to potential relationships, to potential careers, and so on, right? But you know what? To the upside-down servant, all your abilities and all your strengths and all your successes, they are liabilities. They are liabilities because they keep you from coming to Jesus with nothing but your need. And listen, this this is what the gospel tells us. The one thing Jesus requires of his followers is that they would bring to him nothing but their need. And the problem for us is that very few of us have it. We've spent so much energy in the outside-in world building our resumes, but in Jesus' kingdom, it's simply amassing liabilities. There are plenty of us this morning in this room who feel a significant amount of shame in their lives and disappointment about themselves, regrets, right? And because we are so committed, and it's such a fabric of our culture, this outside-in strategy, we think, I really need to clean myself up. I really need to get disciplined. I need to do better before I come to Jesus. 
And I'm telling you, that is the one thing you must not do with Jesus. You need to come to him with nothing but your need to lay your deadly doing down and come to, come to the upside-down servant. Because the truth is, to truly apprehend and see Jesus' beauty is to realize that everything he did, he did for you. I mean, he was born in obscurity for you. He was poor and homeless for you. He was despised for you. He was broken. He was crushed. He was killed. He became a victim for you. Because he was the upside-down servant for you, he calls you to come into his kingdom upside-down, not with your strengths, but with your needs. Because he was the upside-down servant, you know what this means? It means anyone can come to him. Because you don't need a resume of all your assets. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been. You can come to this Jesus with nothing but your need. Because everything he did was for you, right? He took your resume of brokenness and died for you in order to give you his resume of perfect righteousness so that you can finally rest and live off of his resume for you. Okay, listen to me. When you do that, he turns you into his inside-out, upside-down followers. Of course you're hungry. I am too, for validation, for approval, for acceptance, to know you matter and to know that you're enough and that you're okay. But when you come to Jesus, you can finally stop. You can stop trying to build an identity on what you do and what you accomplish. You can build your identity on Jesus and you can rest. And when you do your successes in life, they'll never puff you up and make you arrogant if your identity is in Jesus. And your failures and losses in this life will never crush you to despair if your identity is in Jesus. Because listen, that's no longer who you are. You are a child of the king, right? And you are already fully loved and accepted. You cannot be more accepted or more approved or more valued than you already are. And that truth begins to change you. That beauty begins to change you from the inside out and turn you upside down. His beauty begins to change what you see as truly beautiful in this life. Listen, and it begins to bleed into every area of your life. I mean, earlier we were talking about um, how the outside-in strategy plays into our careers and into our relationships and what we do with our money. What would be different in your career if you stopped trying to use your career to validate your life and give you an identity? I mean, could you start dreaming about how you could use the skills God has given you and the gifts he's given you to serve the unattractive, the unmajestic, the formless people and places of this world? Right, relationally. I mean, could you stop only hanging out with people who are just like you, that you love to be around And really start thinking about how you can hang out with people that you know will cost you. Cost you financially and emotionally and even socially. That's upside down to start thinking like that. Financially, could you start dreaming about how to give more and more of your wealth away? And to live truly generously in this life. Okay, let me end with a a story here. Father Damien, he was a priest um, who became famous for his willingness 
to give his life to serve and to help others. And what he did was he moved to a village in Hawaii. That doesn't sound like suffering. Um, but, um, but he moved to a particular village um, that had been quarantined because it was a village of lepers. And he went there to serve those lepers. L- listen to his story. I'm just going to read this instead of telling it. It's very short. But for 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch. He preached to hearts that otherwise would have been left alone. He organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly it was said that this village became a place to live rather than a place to die. For Father Damien offered hope. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his finger in the bowl along with the patients when they ate. He shared his pipe. Right? He, he did not always wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close And for this, the people loved him. Then one day, he stood up and began his sermon with two words, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin, for he had chosen to live as they lived. And now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. Listen, That's a life of inside-out and upside-down beauty. How do you get changed so radically that you would live like that? right? And surely it's going to take you some dreaming. It's going to take me some dreaming. And it's going to look different here in Memphis in what we do with our lives. Um, But how do you even start moving in that direction? You do it by seeing this beauty, that one day God himself came to earth and he began his message this way, we lepers, right? Because now he wasn't just helping us, but he was in our skin and he was one of us and he came completely upside down. He came in our skin to take our sin to take our leprosy to the cross. And there he won by losing, right? He was victorious through his defeat. And I'm asking you if you can blink and see the beauty of this upside-down servant. Because if you do, it will begin changing you from the inside out and will turn you upside down. What we are going to do in just a moment is we're going to come together to the Lord's staple and take the Lord's Supper together. The followers of Jesus will be invited to take bread, the body of Jesus, to take wine, the blood of Jesus, and we will proclaim together that he was broken for us and his blood was shed for us because the hope of Christmas really is an upside-down servant. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time we've shared today in your word. 
And we pray that you would help us to recognize in our own lives all the different ways we are using the outside-in strategy to find our worth and our value and build identities for ourselves. And we pray that you would help us because we truly do need your help. We need your help. We need you to reveal the servant to us in order that we see his beauty, in order that we can truly come to him with nothing in our hand but our need. And to know that he has met every need of ours, that he took our resume and died for it in order that he could give us his resume of complete righteousness. And Father, we pray that that beauty would turn us inside out and upside down for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.